You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week's guest is Anne Cocos. The podcast is based on a programme we had for her here at the International Spy Museum on her book, Trafficking Data. Information has always been shaped or constrained by the technology available and by other issues of supply and demand. For example, a largely illiterate population won't have a huge demand for books on the demand side and supply can be constrained by the time it takes to produce books and to distribute them. But with huge increases in literacy and the information revolution, we are now in a brave new, technologically enabled world of data overload. This data, of course, can be harvested for intelligence insights by intelligence agencies. Anne helps us prize apart how the data we generate is used, misused and abused in the context of the relationship between the world's two largest economies, the US and China. She argues that exploitative Silicon Valley data governance practices help China build infrastructures for global control. Anne is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and the C.K. Yen Chair at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. For over 20 years, she has researched the U.S. and China as a consultant, professor, Fulbright Scholar and employee of Fortune 500 companies. She is also the author of the award-winning book, Hollywood Made in China. For detailed notes, links to resources and full transcripts, go to cyberwire slash podcast slash spycast. If you're feeling particularly wild, you can always leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Because, well, why the heck not? Welcome to Trafficking Data with Ann Kokas. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our historian and curator, Dr. Andrew Hammond, 
We'll be interviewing Anne about her new book, Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. So enough from me. Over to you, Andrew and Anne. Thank you, Amanda. I'm really pleased that this one has came about. Uh, Anne and I were at the Cloguet Centre at the Library of Congress in February, March 2020. Uh, everything was going swimmingly, but we're working on our respective projects with a great bunch of people. And then one day we had a meeting and everything went uh, rather crazy because of COVID-19. So I'm really pleased for you to do this with us today. And uh, thanks ever so much for your time. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a, such a pleasure to see you um, uh, in this wonderful environment and to see you here at Spy Museum. And I, I feel really lucky to be able to share this book, which I actually wrote most of during the COVID-19 pandemic. So um, it really is a, a full circle moment. It really is. Well, one of the first things that I wanted to ask was, uh, I always quite like to ask my wife, what's the one question that you would like to be answered on this program? Because she's not a uh, a specialist in this kind of area and she's like is Echo or Alexa listening to us um, so I think that that ties into your book so maybe you can answer that question based on all the years of research you've done on this yeah so this is this is I think a great question and not the and I think your your wife is really on target with this so Echo, Alexa, Siri, if you haven't and if you haven't changed your settings, your factory settings, it is listening to you because that's part of the service. Um, if you want to be able to say, if you want to be able to voice use voice activated commands, the the platform has to be able to hear and use your voice. So is now the question of if that if Alexa is listening to you and gathering your gossip and trying to get information about you and maybe sharing. That's what her. I was trying to get at. Yeah. You know, that's a little <laughs> bit less likely. Um, but more, more happening is your demographic data is being gathered to be able to better sell you products um, and services. Okay. Well, that, that was my rather playful introduction to your books. So interesting. Uh, and it's a very serious uh, topic that we're speaking about. So we're talking about this huge explosion of data and information and how it gets used. Um, so I just want to really briefly read a quote from your book, which I think sets everything up. Users wishing simply to scroll through funny videos, attend school during a COVID-19 quarantine, play video games with their friends, map their family tree, or clean their floors with a robot vacuum, are drawn into a transnational cycle that they neither understand nor have the power to influence. So could you just help us unpack that? What's going on there? So we go about our modern 21st century lives. We're using all of these pieces of tech that are hooked up to the internet. Help us understand what's going on here. What, how is our data being trafficked? So one of the big challenges that we face as users is that a lot of these services, a lot of the digital services that we're engaged with are designed to help us save time, connect with people more quickly, and they are the products of platforms and corporations that um, that are able to gather our user data, particularly in the United States, uh, through very unclear terms of service and through agreements that we may not fully fully understand or appreciate. Um, so for example, uh, one that I look at a lot in the book is the transfer of data to third parties. 
third parties could mean anything. And in, in the case of a lot of the parts of the book, it could also mean the Chinese government. So what we see here is a dynamic where users are just trying to live their lives by doing things like playing video games or getting a, a robot vacuum. And their data is being gathered through these unclear consent agreements. Now, this is already a problem in a U.S. context, and um, Shoshana Zuboff has written, has written a lot about the rise of surveillance capitalism or the monetization of the human experience. But in a U.S.-China context um, or a trade-with-China context outside of the U.S., we're also dealing with a moment where the Chinese government is expanding its vision of what sovereignty includes to, to include things like digital platforms and maybe some of the digital platforms that you are using on a daily basis at your house. And let's talk about one of those digital platforms. Let's talk about TikTok, which I think is an interesting one. So just to go back into the combination of personal and focusing on your book. So my niece is on TikTok. She uploads a video. Help us understand the journey of that video. So focusing on one specific, but in the book you speak about how one particular example, if you multiply that across the billion users of TikTok, then it starts to get very interesting. But just help us understand. So listeners out, viewers out there, listeners who upload a video on TikTok or have a family member who does it, why should they be concerned? What's going on? Um, was this set up by the by Chinese intelligence services? Was this, well, this happens and now we may as well like utilize the information that comes about as a result of TikTok or help us understand the journey of a TikTok video and how or, or in what ways Chinese intelligence services are involved? So I think this becomes a really interesting question um, in a lot of ways. So first of all, there is the process of your niece uploading the video to TikTok um, and whatever data she's sharing as part of that. And then there's the process of what TikTok is able to gather about her from her phone, from any audio information they're able to gather, from her biometrics, things that she's agreeing to as part of the term, signing the terms of service of TikTok. Now, these are not necessarily issues that are exclusively related to China. They're related to any kind of digital platform that your niece might be using. So these are concerns with Instagram as well. Um, now, the part that becomes really interesting is because of protections for corporations that are operating in the United States, it's actually very difficult track where user data is stored and who ultimately has access to it. Now, this has been a way that the U.S. has supported the growth of Silicon Valley firms. Um, so a lack of kind of robust oversight has enabled really massive increases in shareholder value um, as these firms have been able to operate in a relatively unconstrained way. Now, what happens in the case of a company like TikTok is it's also able to operate in that relatively unconstrained environment but is also subject to Chinese government regulations that allow the Chinese government to, um, specifically the Cyberspace Administration of China, to conduct national security data audits of firms like ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, um, or to do searches or to, to make potential um, national security claims against people who might be uploading things that would work against the national security of China, according to the Hong Kong National Security Law. So I would say that the biggest challenge is there isn't really a very robust oversight mechanism to know precisely what happens with your niece's data. Okay. And in what ways 
if at all are Chinese intelligence services involved? Help us understand that. I like the way in the book you say, or, or you mentioned that someone says that the China threat mm. can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you keep saying something's a threat, then right, right, eventually right. it will be a threat. So obviously we don't want to do that, but you know right. the focus of your book is on the US and, right. and China. So how are Chinese intelligence services involved in TikTok and the information that these companies gather? Because the relationship between Chinese intelligence services, the Chinese state and Chinese corporations is very different from here in the US. So just help us understand that relationship on the China side. Yeah. So this becomes really, this is really important. Now, um, one of the reasons why I was really interested in this book is because a lot of these, a lot of these mechanisms aren't actually through the intelligence services. They're actually just digital oversight. So it would be like if the Federal Trade Commission or the FCC could conduct data security oversights over Facebook or Instagram. So in some ways, this doesn't even need to rise to the level of the intelligence services to do the the most basic level of of oversight. It's very clearly stated in Chinese law um, and is is not necessarily connected to the intelligence context. Now, that does not mean that it has no intelligence applications, of course. The thing that I focus on in the book is the fact that this is the in many ways, normal commercial transactions that have intelligence implications. The principle that I think is most important to understand for viewers is this idea of military-civil fusion, or um, also sometimes translated as civil-military fusion, which means that the Chinese government can extract anything of value, any kind of products of value from Chinese corporations for military purposes. And this is a very broadly defined right or capability. We learned about an an analog to this in the U.S. called the Defense Production Act, when there was an effort in the very beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic to make um, to to force the U.S. government or to force companies to make masks, and that was a major failure, as as many of us saw. Um, but um, though there was the success with the COVID nineteen vaccine, um, now in the Chinese context, this is much more expansive and can apply in a much wider range of different contexts. So in the case of something like TikTok, we see user data can be very valuable for counterintelligence purposes. Um, We also see a company like Tencent, which is the parent company of the social media platform WeChat, that is also heavily involved in the U.S. gaming industry, um, not just involved in commercial enterprises for, for media and technology, but also in China's AI military intelligentization or AI military growth. I'm trying to get a sense on of how much the Chinese government or Chinese intelligence agencies have their thumb on the scale or are influencing some of these corporations like TikTok, Alibaba, Baidu. Is it the these companies are just doing what companies do, which is trying to boost profits and then the government, because of the type of society China is, the government takes advantage of the information that they collect or is the government or our Chinese intelligence involved in saying, okay, we really want to get this information on people in the United States or here's what you need to do next. I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of like how much of these companies just operating autonomously over here and how much are they being directed centrally over here? Because that's one of the relationships that you look at in the book, that the relationship between uh, corporations in China and the Chinese government and how they're quite different from the relationship in the United States. 
It's really interesting because it varies according to corporation and varies by CEO. There are different, different CEOs have different visions of themselves as in relation to the Chinese government. So the founder of Huawei is a former military officer. So he obviously has a, a different types of links to the Chinese government than, for example, the founder of ByteDance, um, who, you know, or Jack Ma, who has his, whose origins were in education. So Certain certain founders like Jack Ma have really pitched themselves as global humanitarians, global leaders in the tech sector. Um, and we've seen in the context of the Chinese government recently that that, that model has not been as successful. Um, Jack Ma disappeared for, for three months um, quite recently and, um, and has only started to reemerge. Uh, we also are seeing a model where companies like Didi that, um, that went against Cyberspace Administration of China data oversight regulations and moved forward with an IPO and an, an initial public offering on the New York Stock or in the United States uh, were then really roundly punished by having their app removed from the app store in China and their IPO totally crashed. We're also seeing examples of, for example, um, ByteDance's competitor, Kuaishou, uh, recently had uh, the Chinese government had a Chinese government entity take a board seat um, and also special, special management shares of the company. So essentially partially making it a, a public or a um, a government-run firm on a very small scale. So the really interesting part about this and the part that I think makes it very important for domestic regulations in, in democratic and their allies is that each of these countries, each of these companies operates differently. The government operates differently with them. Um, and there's also not a lot of a lot of clarity about what those relationships look like because they're also conducted internally through things like um, Communist Party committees that operate in Beijing within internally within those um, within those firms. And for our listeners who read about China and the news and so forth, how much of this is um, connected to Xi Jinping, the current leader? Is is this something that predates that? I mean, I know that the the growth of this technology uh, is constantly evolving. So in some sense, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. But what's his role in any of this? Or is he is this a system that's operating almost independently of what the premier is doing? Or help me understand how much he's involved in, in some of this stuff or not involved. Yeah, so this is definitely part of Xi's vision of what a more expansive Chinese sovereignty or more expansive Chinese global power would look like. So, for example, um, Xi Jinping was directly involved in the establishment of the World Internet Conference, a conference that's held in Hangzhou, um, which is also the um, the founding location of Alibaba, uh, and is is a conference that's designed to help establish standards globally and to bring tech firms and other other noteworthy individuals and influencers in the tech sector, as well as different countries together to establish tech standards on a Chinese, from a Chinese perspective and according to a Chinese model. We also see Xi's involvement in something called the Digital Silk Road. So the Belt and Road Initiative is a major Chinese uh, trade and investment initiative that is designed as a way to expand China's influence and the influence of Chinese firms globally through trade and investment practices. Um, we also see, addition to this, uh, the Digital Silk Road, 
where a lot of digital platforms are being used to advance those trade and investment practices. Things like WeChat Pay or Alipay, Chinese payment platforms that um, can then be used as a way to undergird construction projects uh, to pay people who are working on those construction projects. They're really closely entwined um, and also fit into what she calls a community of common destiny or a community of shared destiny that includes these, um, these digital platforms. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. And just while we're on the topic of the Digital Silk Road, could you just explain for our listeners that haven't came across it before, what's the Great Firewall of China, which I think uh. is you know, an interesting play on the Great Wall, of course. Yeah, no, so I'm so glad you asked this question because that's actually why I wrote the book in some ways. I was working on a, on my first book, Hollywood Made in China, as a Fulbright scholar in China, and I was having difficulty accessing the internet. And I happened to be able to work inside the offices of a virtual private network company or a proxy server company that was essentially leaping over the Great Firewall of China or a system that's that's put into place to limit what people in China can access online um, and also put into place to anticipate and censor content within the Chinese context. I think it would also be quite interesting, uh, just before we dig into the content of the book a bit more, could we just set out a stall for our viewers on what we're talking about here? So in terms of intelligence services, we're talking about the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security. Um, which one of them are, 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 are out of all the different intelligence agencies? Like who's who's involved in this? Many of our viewers will know about the CIA's role compared to the NSA's mm-hmm. roles, but just help us understand the actors in Chinese intelligence that are around about the story of your book. So definitely the definitely the Ministry of State Security, the Ministry of Public Security, the People's Liberation Army um, also has a very active presence in um, in in hacking and exploits. Um, And also the Cyberspace Administration of China is heavily involved in oversight um, and has its own um, and has its own capacity for um, for tracking user data and for tracking individual users. So one of the things that I think is really interesting within a Chinese context is the way in which the way in which oversight of users and um, and the way in which the oversight of consumers and citizens doesn't necessarily have to be limited entirely to just the Ministry of State Security or the Public Security Bureau. And and for our viewers, state security is mainly foreign intelligence and espionage and public security is more domestic. Yeah. 
help our listeners understand as well. So here we wake up, we get out our phone, we look at Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook and so forth. Help us understand what it's like for the average Chinese person. Like what's the the technology landscape like there? Help our viewers understand, I believe Baidu's like the Chinese Google, Alibaba's like the Chinese Amazon. Just help us understand the way that Chinese people are are interfacing with the modern world. Yeah, this is a really important question, particularly following the nineteen pandemic. Um, so, unlike in the United States um, and a lot of end European countries and places like Japan and Korea, rather than using multiple different apps for different purposes, in China there's really one central app that really guides most interactions with the digital world, and that's WeChat. Um, So people can pay on WeChat. Uh, Their health information is tracked on WeChat as a way to manage um, access related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, It's a way in which people pay their, in which people pay their bills, in which people um, are able to to get onto trains and to, to be able to access different types of municipal services. So Unlike this kind of very fragmented Western landscape, WeChat is really at the core of communication. Now, the thing that's really important for Western viewers to understand about this is in order to communicate with China from the United States or from other Western countries or other countries around the world, WeChat is actually necessary because there are no other highly functional apps in China. And WeChat is also a highly surveilled platform. So it creates this really strange dynamic where on one hand, the WeChat Users Alliance advocated and sued uh, the Trump administration because the Trump administration tried to shut down WeChat. But at the same time, users were also still having their data censored and their content censored. But it was the only way that they could connect with their friends and family in China or with business associates in China. So this is a once these platforms take hold, they become really kind of essential, not just within a Chinese context, but globally for anyone who wants to interact with China. And just before we dig into the content of the book, uh, just one more uh, question uh, as a way station on the way there. Is there a Chinese Silicon Valley and where is it in relation to Beijing and Shanghai? Yeah, so there are multiple sites in China where there's really robust growth of the tech sector. So in Beijing, there's a neighborhood called Zhongguansun, which is right in between um, Tsinghua University, uh, the MIT of China, and um, Peking University, the Harvard of China. Um, and so a lot of a lot of firms like ByteDance have their headquarters or have their headquarters there or have, are very active there. Um, there's also Shenzhen, um, which is one of the which is closely located to Hong Kong, and um, now according to Chinese. Um, Chinese geographers is called part of the Greater Bay Area. Uh, so this kind of integration of the Hong Kong's robust technical systems and um, and Shenzhen's um, has become a really interesting feature that we see involved after the Hong Kong national security law in 2020. But Shenzhen is, is a major mecca for the growth of the tech sector. And then finally, Alibaba's headquarters in Hangzhou. Um, which is, but these are all coastal or all on the eastern part of the country. So that is an important geographic distinction to understand. Because that's the most developed and populous part. Right. It's the most developed part. It's the most populous part. So when we're talking about these kind of robust systems of surveillance that um, exist in a commercial context for the benefit of users, um, 
it primarily exists on this on the east coast and help our listeners get their head around uh, your book, which they can get from the Spy Museum store if any of them are around uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, yes. uh, and I believe you're going to come in and sign some copies for us. <laughs> yeah. so, thank you. You can get a signed copy. <laughs> um, help them understand the book and the elevator pitch then. You're going in the elevator. Like, what, what, What's the main thing that you set out to do and uh, what's the main takeaway? So the main argument of the book is that the U.S. has grown and um, Silicon Valley has grown powerful through extracting user data and through a system where users are not really able to, to control or understand where their data is being used. Now, that's a problem. It becomes an even bigger problem in trade with China, where the Chinese government has established a, a clear system for overseeing and grabbing that data as part of Chinese government oversight mechanisms. And there's very little that countries like the U.S. without strong tech regulation can do to respond to it. Because we're because this is how our system works. This is the strength of the system. Um, and so I argue that we need to, there needs to be a really massive reevaluation of what the role of the tech sector is in our society in the context of global competition with China. Help our viewers understand that relationship between the United States and China. So how the information, the data flows uh, between both of them, because it's quite interesting in the book, you discuss how in China, the information is centralized to be able to play the game. You have to sign up to them getting your data and to sign up to this oversight. But in the US, it's in some ways, it's the opposite. It's relatively unregulated. The government doesn't have anywhere near as much oversight. Um, and then even in terms of regulation in China, because the because you don't want to get frozen out of the market, you have to almost overshare information to make sure you're complying. But in the United States, it's, it's begrudgingly, you give the least amount of information that you can. So, so we're talking about an exchange between two poles, but both of those poles are very different in the way that information flows through both of them. Can you help? our viewers get a sense of how that all takes place? Yeah, so this so I think it's helpful to understand what the what the US digital over digital landscape looks like. So in the US you can have um, there are laws for patient data for health but not but it doesn't include like your Fitbit or your Apple Watch data even though that might be health data. There are financial laws that only apply to the state of New York for financial data. There are biometric laws that only apply to the state of Illinois. California has its own consumer <laughs> privacy laws um, that don't apply elsewhere. There are also competing consumer privacy laws. There are content moderation laws in Texas, competing consumer privacy laws in Virginia and Utah. Um, and then no actual national data regulation for anyone except for children age 13 and under. Oh. And those are only, and those are only I was enforced. getting a headache there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you have to imagine that enforcement is not so easy. So, you know, so for example, Facebook fine um, through the F Federal Trade Commission of $5 million because of their violations of um, the rights of children under, under 13. But $5 million to Facebook is 
it's actually not not that bad of a not that bad of a penalty. <laughs> You're really thinking about ways to penalize a, a, a wealthy tech firm. Five million dollars might not be the the exact um, the exact answer you'd be looking for. But so that's how the U.S. context operates. Now, in the Chinese context, we see a really different landscape where firms get shut down. As I mentioned, with the DD IPO, they didn't work with the Cyberspace Administration of China on um, on their data security over um, on their data security audit and were taken off the app store, which had really significant immediate financial impacts. There are also things like exit bans. So tech CEOs uh, might not be able to leave the country if their company is not in compliance. Um, We also see these kind of very expansive national regulations that um, include things like all tech companies and all critical infrastructure providers have to store all of their user data on Chinese government-run servers. That's a level of oversight that's impossible to even conceive of, and definitely not one that I'm advocating for within a U.S. context. But we don't even have a a national, a basic national privacy law, so that's a really big difference that I think we can see. For the United States as well, help our listeners understand the way that the system is set up. Who's driving it? Is it just that government are focusing on other things in the tech sector as long as they're making money as long as they're propping up the stocks as long as people's pension funds are making money from amazon and facebook and so forth is it just well it's not a problem so let's just let it keep running as it is or is it yeah i'm just trying to get a sense of the intentionality behind the u.s system is it just silicon valley organically grew and it's just been left to do its own thing or yeah, help us understand how the government is or isn't involved in this sort of wild west uh, that you describe? Yeah, I think for a long time there was this kind of an alliance between the interests of the U.S. tech sector and the interests of the U.S. government. Because let's be very frank, um, Facebook and Amazon and Google have really served as engines of U.S. power in the 21st century. Um, so on one hand, there's that aspect of it where there's a reluctance to to regulate. People have also um, earned a lot of money um, in the stock market. Pension funds have earned a lot of money. Contributors to congressional campaigns have earned a lot of money and are able to contribute and raise money for, for candidates. There's also, there is awareness though of these issues in um, particularly as they relate to China. The big challenge is there isn't necessarily even consensus on, on data issues within parties, let alone across parties. And over the summer, there was the possibility of an American Data Privacy and Protection Act that would have given some lower level data protection um, in in the U.S., much less than we would have seen through GDPR like we would see in a European context. But um, but was really what was really interesting was U.S. domestic politics really before when we were thinking about risks that that presented. Because Before the Dobbs decision um, related to issues of abortion and abortion access, there was some consensus between the Republicans and Democrats on data security and um, data privacy. After the Dobbs decision, when data related to, for example, period trackers or um, movement to and from abortion clinics became more related to other types of domestic political issues, this fragmented and it wasn't necessarily about questions of data security or U.S.-China relations anymore. It also became an issue of U.S. domestic politics. Similarly, in the Democratic Party, for example, there are differing levels of interest in in 
overseeing the tech sector because the California delegation, for example, uh, has a lot of interest in protecting the companies uh, that they represent. And those companies don't necessarily want higher levels of data oversight. So it's it's a really interesting dynamic. And even if people are aware of these issues, it's difficult to move forward with them. You give an interesting example in the book where there's a teenage girl who gets some promotional material through about pregnancy before she's told her mother that she's pregnant because of the way that she's interacting with technology. Could you speak about that one a little bit more? Yeah, so this is um this isn't this speaks to an important concept um called mosaic theory where we really want to think not just about the individual pieces of data that we're sharing but how all those da- all those pieces of data can be shared together. Um so for example, when you you gave the example of your niece on TikTok, uh so it's not just about what your niece shares at that particular moment, um it's also where she's located, why she might be sharing that information, who she's with and what they might be sharing, who she tags, the what networks might be accessed and what that actually tells about your niece much more than what she's posting or what might be interesting and for this explosion of information what can your average person on the street do so and in, in the book you you almost say that for the individual it's it's kind of it's, it's almost futile to to go about trying to protect your i mean not completely but it's a systemic problem that needs to be addressed systemically and and me or you or everybody on this program right now changing what they do is not going to amount to a hell of beans really in the grand scheme of things so what can people do to try to protect their information to try to protect their company's information or the government's information yeah what would a roadmap for them look like so this i think is a really important question and one thing i don't want to do is contribute to this idea of digital resignation or the fact that we can't do anything and that we're just caught and stuck. Um, but I do think it we can think about this as being very analogous to the climate question, where it's true there are things that individuals can do. We can, in our case, we can change our privacy settings. We can limit what apps we use and when we use them and what information we share with whom. Or if in the climate context, you can become vegan, you can drive less, etc., But ultimately, without major changes in how terms of service operate or how data privacy functions within the context of a a national government, those changes will be on the margins and they won't necessarily offer protection. So what I would argue is that there's a need for more collective action. Um, There's a need to, to pressure lawmakers and to pressure industry associations Um, to push back, um, and also to educate consumers. So thank you for having me on. Um, Hopefully (laughs) this is doing our our small part um, to educate students um, on on what these issues mean and what the implications are for when we download a new app, when we um, use a new technology, um, and what that that means, not just for, um, for our personal privacy, but for, you know, national digital sovereignty. On that topic of digital resignation, I think that's an interesting one, the sense of, well, why bother? Um, you know, you sign up for some app and they, they make you scroll through a war and peace sized consent form and then you click a box at the bottom. And I mean, it could say practically anything you've, you've agreed to. Um, but just on that topic, um, you mentioned in the book 
So the Office of Personnel Management, there's a data breach there where um, information surrounding security clearances and so forth is leaked. And then that same year, there's one of Anthem, a healthcare company, in 2017, Equifax, the credit rating agency, uh, Marriott Hotels. I think that one's huge. It's like hundreds of millions um, of of individuals information that's out there so with all of them i mean do you think that some to some extent the public has been normalized into this or it's just it's just another data breach you know i mean what can you do at this point it's just what can you do almost everything has been hacked uh even the office of personnel management places that have very robust um cyber defense systems and so forth so uh, yeah what what's your thoughts on that Anne? This, I think, is something that that we all need to look at. And, and this is where the climate analogy becomes becomes useful as well. You know, if you you can, it's true, a lot of bad things have happened, and there are a lot of things that can't be fixed. Um, and so, for example, Grinder was sold to a Chinese firm, and there's a lot of you know personal information about people, images, HIV status. Um, that's now accessible to the Chinese government. Um, and even though it was eventually sold back to the to a US firm, that that data transfer already happened. TikTok is already a piece of is already critical communications infrastructure in the United States. Um, so we could say we'll just throw up our hands and we won't do anything. And that's an option. Um, it's also an option <laughs> in the climate context. I'm I'm thinking about COP27 as, as we're talking about this, which is why it keeps coming up. But um, but I think. There's also the possibility that we can try to mitigate future damage. Um, so, just because you, as a teen, as a kid, had your parents post your pictures up on Facebook, doesn't mean that you have to do that for your children. Um, just because, like, just because <laughs> that's you know, at a very at a very basic level, um, we can we can choose what technology we bring into our homes and when we use it and why. Um, we can advocate for these issues with our elected officials, even though they're dealing with a lot of other things now as well. So I guess I'm not a realist. I'm an optimist in this sense, but I, I do think it's really important to understand these issues at a very minimum and try to try to advocate for change where we can. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. You know, I, th- I think it's really, really interesting as well. If you think about the 
incentives. It seems to me that for tech companies, in the book, you talk about how they're busily harvesting our data, busily uh, putting us to work during our free time by collecting information about everything that we do. But they privatize gains, and then when there's there's a data leak or when they're hacked, then the losses are collectivized. It's just everybody has to suck it up. So I spoke to someone not long ago and they said, for me, if any company had to pay people whose information was leaked a dollar for every day of the leak, then they would actually start to take it. It's not that they don't take it seriously now, but they don't take it seriously enough. Some of these leaks have been low-hanging fruit and so forth. So I just wondered, how can government, if you had magic and control over the US government, what are a few things that the government could do to just get this whole sector um, realigned along the ways that you suggest in the book? There are a couple of there are a couple of things that I talk about in the book. Um, one key area is I think trying to work with allies and partners to establish um, international data transfer agreements and standards so that um, data trafficking is less likely to occur or it occurs um, or if it does occur, it's it's occurring in the context of already established standards and protocols. So that's one key area. Um, doing this through things like trade agreements, um, the CPTPP, the um, um, the follow-up to the Trans-Pacific Partnership offers data governance frameworks that um, present a transnational uh, framework. There are also the, there's also the possibility of working with governments like the European Union and Japan, which have established data adequacy agreements for data transfer. Um, other areas that can be worked on are establishing national data privacy and, and protection regulations um, that aren't just state-by-state state or sector-by-sector sector that offer a more comprehensive vision Another possibility, um, which is one I think that speaks to the financial question that you're bringing up here, is requiring insurance, requiring insurance for companies that have major leaks or major hacks um, and an insurance underwriting process, which then internalizes the externality of that hack and internalizes those costs. And then as a result, requires a lot more um, intentionality about how one deals with those issues. And just very briefly on externalities, can you just explain what they are? So an externality would be something that might um, that might be a, a negative outcome of something that um, so a ne- so an externality of a hack would be that you would, that someone would lose their data. So internalizing that externality would be requiring that company to to pay for or to have some sort of financial or otherwise otherwise other type of consequence for that um, for that negative outcome. Okay. I find that one really interesting. And that also has implications for the climate issue, right? If you make money off of facilitating a lot of people performing a particular thing, and then the results of that are that a lake is polluted, for example, then that's not built into the to the business model, is it? That's just, well, we make money and then if everything goes wrong, then it's the local government or the municipality or or the federal government that pick up the check because that's not built into what we're thinking about. I think sometimes I think now we're sometimes seeing uh, pollution being being built in, but definitely carbon capture or carbon um carbon emissions is something that we're definitely looking at ways to to build into the cost that that companies are facing. For your book, give us a sense of the conversation that is situated within. So is this something that there's a conversation about data trafficking and 
you're on one pole and someone else is on another or yeah what's the what's the kind of landscape is there someone out there that completely disagrees with you or is it everybody agrees with you but everybody disagrees on the tactics or the strategy or or the analysis yeah just give us a sense of the of the the context within which your book is situated like what's the conversation surrounding the trafficking of data Yeah, I think that there are two conversations that this book speaks to. One is conversations on U.S.-China relations and to what degree it's, to what degree the U.S. wants, the U.S. and other countries want to decouple from from China, particularly from the Chinese tech sector, and what the, the potential risks of that might be. So this is in part contributing to that discussion of what those risks would look like and and how consumer behavior is impacting those risks. Then the other is the conversation about what are the potential risks and damages of using a lot of these technologies? And is it that using platforms like TikTok or even using platforms like Instagram is something that is just part of our modern world and we accept and we move forward with and commoditization of the human experience via data is something that we just need to, you know, recognize is, is, you know, what it means to be a 21st century person. Or is it something that presents some security risks, personal risks, political risks uh, that we need to address? And so that's the other conversation. So obviously, so I'm making the claim that it's important to recognize that countries now need to think about what digital sovereignty means to them and that tech platforms and how we work with and interact with tech platforms, both as people and as governments, um, needs to shift. So we spoke about the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry for Public Security, so Chinese intelligence agencies. How, if at all, are American intelligence agencies involved in this picture, whether it be just purely internal to the US or whether China or the the relationship between both? In the Snowden revelations, we learned that um, through FISA courts, um, the U.S. U.S. state U.S. security agencies and um, U.S. spy agencies can um, can have access to our user data uh, through through pa- to, through pathways that are not actually transparently articulated. Um, so there's a there are very good reasons why the Chinese government may not be interested in having U.S. tech platforms operating in China. Um, now it, it's an interesting choice, knowing that that the U.S. still allows Chinese platforms to operate in the U.S. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting dynamic that we see. Um, however, one of the key points that I think is important to remember in terms of the distinction between the United States and China is the relative power of the tech sector vis-a-vis the government. So while we did see through the Snowden revelations uh, government access to to tech platforms, we also have seen that there's really very little oversight and very little regulation, even when there's a lot of will. So for example, the Federal Trade Commission um, has had a lot of interest in in addressing potential antitrust issues in the tech sector uh, for the past two years. And there's been very little, if any, progress in in that area. So by contrast, we see that the Chinese government has been able to to take board seats in major Chinese tech firms uh, with very little pressure um, and very little change in, in regulation. So there are really important differences of scale here when we think about the interaction between government and technology companies. And just before we hand it back to Amanda, I was just wondering, would you recommend anybody that's on WeChat or TikTok get off of them? Um, oh. Or Yeah. Sorry, I know it's a tough one, but I had to, I had to do it. No, no, no. I think, it, I mean, it is a really <laughs> tough question. So 
I so I think that WeChat question is tougher than the TikTok question because there are people who have family members that they can only contact via WeChat or business associates that they can only contact via WeChat. Um, I think it's it's helpful to maybe have a separate device that one uses to create some some barrier between your all of your personal information. Uh, but that's actually also good advice for anyone who has a corporate phone. I wouldn't recommend keeping your your personal information on your corporate phone either. Um, TikTok, I. I am. Um, I don't. I don't use TikTok apart from for research purposes. And even with that, I find it like shocking and appalling how much TikTok knows about me and how much how good the algorithm was and picking picking apart little small pieces of my personality. So I I would stay away from TikTok and stay away from WeChat unless it was strictly necessary for going to China, living in China, contacting people in China. Uh, we'll turn it over to Amanda, and I definitely need to get you to have a chat to my niece. Um, it would be my pleasure, though. Probably not her pleasure. <laughs> this poor niece, Andrew, she's going to say, you're using me as an example. Well, I want to thank you both for being so optimistic with some, some rather dark answers in some places, but I appreciate the good share. One of our frequent guests had a, a whole bunch of questions right at the beginning saying, what is the risk of using VPN in China? To, to bypass the firewall. You know, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is a, um, so using a VPN is technically illegal. So there are legal risks that one would face using a VPN in China. Um, and so that's something that I think is important to know. Uh, in 2013, when I was doing it as part of my research, it was not illegal. I was not doing anything illegal at that particular time, but those laws have changed. Um, that being said, it's a weird dynamic where a lot of people need to use VPNs to tunnel outside of the Great Firewall. So it's something that a lot of people do that is also not legal in most contexts. That would be the biggest risk that I would point to. That seems like a risk. Um, what about <laughs> what about the old turn it off your location? Does that help at all? So turning off your location when you're using an app, so not allowing the app to track you? Just in general. This, yeah. This person asked in general, does turning off your location help at all? I mean, I think that that definitely there are, um, there are different types of um, settings that we can adjust that limit the way, in which, the way in which we can be tracked, especially by apps that don't necessarily need that information. Like, does Yelp need to know where you are when At all you're times. not ordering food? No, it really doesn't. So, so those, are, those are things that we can pay attention to. Also, just being cognizant of what apps you have on your phone, what, do, what different platforms you use, um, what, their security, what their security protocols are. One thing that I talk about in the book is that especially consumer products companies, um, for the Internet of Things, those are companies that don't really have a lot of budget for um, security. And so when you're buying a new robot toy and you're not sure where that data is being stored, just think twice before you put that app on your phone. That's all. You know, in the, in the, as the holiday season is coming up, uh, a cheerful message for everyone. Here's a very specific one. Is Proton email secure from Chinese hacking? I could not answer that question with confidence. So I will punt that. Um, what do you think about, told you we had really smart guests. What do you think about federated AI technology as a way to protect user data? 
Yeah, I think this is a great potential solution, and um, and we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of um, we're seeing a lot of apps and platforms use this. Um, I think the biggest challenge is um, is scaling and scaling up the, that type of technology more broadly because it's not necessarily as financially lucrative um, for a lot of um, for a lot of tech platforms. Could you just briefly say what federated AI technology is, please, on? Yeah, so this is when um, this is when different AI server. This is when there are distributed AI um, entities that work together. So all data isn't necessarily stored in one central location. So it's more difficult to to track user data or to aggregate it. All right. Now I want you guys to optimist your way out of this sad question. There are recent articles out of Canada revealing Chinese government funding of political candidates. How we can't imagine that isn't happening here. And here's the dark part. Given that, and along with the lobbying by tech companies, what are the odds of getting anything meaningful done? Well, thank you for that really important question. And um, and unfortunately, it's not just in Canada. We also see this in um, places like New Zealand um, and Australia. Uh, and, and also companies like TikTok in the United States um, have been able to join tech lobbying uh, or tech, you know, uh, professional organizations that have significant impact on U.S. policy. So it's not just U.S. tech firms; it's also um, tech firms that have um, very close ties with China. It's very difficult to think about how we might move forward and what what the future landscape of data security will look like. Uh, I do hope that by raising awareness to users uh, of what their data means and what the kind of different use cases are. So thinking about that mosaic theory, about the way in which, you know, your individual pieces of data might not be useful, but that whole picture of who you are and what your society looks like might be something that you would want to avoid. Um, I really hope that that learning more about that becomes useful and people think about that. But I mean, frankly, we're also seeing a really rapid expansion of China's sovereign claims, not just in the digital realm, not just um, but also in maritime contexts, in the context of space, um, in the Arctic. So this is part of a, a larger picture that we see. Um, and I don't know what the future brings, uh, but all that I can do is, in my small role is to, is to help to educate people on, on the world that they're living in and hope they can make different types of decisions. And can I, can I ask one uh more uh, serious question, uh, one that I wanted to ask. What keeps you up at night, Anne? You, you mentioned critical infrastructure in the book and also healthcare data, uh, which I find particularly disturbing. Even, uh, it may not just be about you, it could be about two generations on from you and so forth. So what's the thing that, that kind of worries you the most about everything that you discovered in the research for the book? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a toss up between the healthcare data and the um, and the agricultural data. So um, so precision agriculture and the oversight of ChemChina by um, uh, the oversight of Syngenta by ChemChina, and um, which is precision agriculture means the monitoring and management of agricultural systems through through technology and through AI. So that I think is a is a particular risk, but also as you point out, the generational challenges of of bio data trafficking is something that I find really concerning, particularly as we learn more about different types of um, precision medicine tools that might be available only to certain populations and not to others. 
or when we think about bioweapons in the future. Um, but I try actually not to think about it because I won't be able to sleep and I, and I know I can't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. These are all really, really scary um, long-term considerations. And, and even if there isn't comprehensive data security, I really hope that there's a more uh, comprehensive oversight of, of our bio data because I think that's crucially necessary. Big question, but just quickly as we're wrapping up, what can the U.S. learn from China? What can we model? I mean, let's learn from what they're doing. Yeah, China has great national consumer data protections. If you're a Chinese consumer, you are protected from corporate data oversight and from corporate data extraction more than you are in the United States. You're not necessarily protected from government data extraction, but corporations can't necessarily gather as much of your user data. And I think that's great. And that's something I would love to learn from the China, something I'd love to bring over here. (laughs) Andrew, any final words before I wrap this up? No, it's been a pleasure to speak to you, Anne. And um, yeah, congratulations again on the book. Thank you so much, Andrew and Amanda. This has been a delight. I've, I've learned so much from, from the audience and from each of you, and I really appreciate the chance to share my book with the Spy Museum. Well, thank you for this thank clear-eyed and, and incredibly optimistic look at, at something that, that is uh, troubling in many ways, but also we have opportunities here. So thank you, and please check our website for programs like this for and for programs for all ages and if you enjoyed the program we don't mind if you make a donation to the spy museum do we andrew not at all (laughs) not one bit not one bit thanks everyone for being here stay well and have a great rest of your day or start of your day or end of your day wherever you are thank you bye-bye bye Bye. thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.